0: Let's open our Bibles to First uh, Peter, chapter two. We've been working through uh, the book of First Peter, uh, and we're through. Uh, in, we're into week four, and we've now gotten through the first chapter. Isn't that exciting? Uh, we're through the first chapter, but over the past three weeks, we've been focusing on our identity in Christ and how that identity translates into centering our hope in the promises of. Jesus. Peter's established that the only way that we're going to live a life of joy and serve Jesus the way we're called to in a culture that doesn't believe in the way that we're called to live, the only way that we're going to be able to do this is if we're grounded in our identity as children of God, children of God, people who have been adopted by God into his family who have a full inheritance, the inheritance that any child would receive from their father. Peter uses fancy words. He talked about us being God's elect, which is just a fancy word for his chosen people, that we are Abraham's seed, that we are his chosen children who have been promised an inheritance on the day that he returns. He says that we're born again or made new in Christ, this rebirth, that we're driven by grace to be obedient children who have placed our hope in Jesus. This is all in chapter one. And then he says that this produces our striving for holiness and a reverent fear of the Lord as we live differently in a culture that wants nothing to do with God. The result, Peter says, of living grounded in Jesus is a sincere love that only the Holy Spirit can produce in us. It's not something that we can produce. It's something that only the Holy Spirit living in us and working through us is able to produce. It's an unconditional love that changes the way that we perceive the world. It changes how we look at everything. Now, in today's passage, Peter is continuing with his thought on our identity in Christ. Now, a little lesson in Bible reading. We have done this thing called chapters and verses, and we put that in place to try to help people to be able to kind of sift through the scriptures a little easier. The reality is, is in the original language, in Peter's letter, it was not broken up into chapters and verses. I talked about that last week as the passage we were dealing with was literally all one sentence. It didn't even have any commas or periods or exclamation marks. And what we do sometimes is we determine where these chapters should split off, but that doesn't mean that it's perfectly done. And so chapter two, the beginning of chapter two is actually linked to the whole content of chapter one. And so just because we switched chapters doesn't mean the author is actually switching gears yet. He will to a point, but the first three verses in chapter two are directly linked to the verses above it. Now, I've taught you this over the past several weeks. How do we know that? It starts with the word... You got it. Therefore. That's right. There. Four. it starts with the word, the all-important word, therefore, which is a linking word, linking it to the verses above. There's a fancy English lesson for you. Therefore, in other words, everything I said, therefore, this is fruit from that, what I've just taught you, essentially. So he says, because we've placed our trust in Jesus, because we are his children, we're actually called to do something. And often the thing that we're called to do is the thing that we want to ignore the most. And that is we are called to change, to become new. You'll constantly hear Peter using this newness language. This this newness that Peter has been encouraging us to is so far he's been talking about encouraging us to be who we are, but now he's going to transition into us actually becoming who we are. So let's dig in. First Peter chapter two. We're going to do a whopping three verses. We're flying through this at the speed of an Indy car. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Uh, we are going to do three verses, and we're going to start with verse one. So there's the the great word therefore, linking it to above. Therefore, rid yourselves. Now right away when I hear that, I like rid myself. What? This isn't going to be good. He's telling me to get rid of something. How many people don't like to get rid of anything? So he says, therefore, because of all these things, because you're the elect, because you're called out, because you're children of God, because you've received this salvation, because you've been born again, therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Thanks, Pete. Essentially, since we are God's obedient children who are striving to live differently, to live holy? That's what he's established, our identity. Peter says that there are things that actually need to change in our lives. And these will be progressive things. Now, often in the New Testament, we get these lists. Now, we deeply misuse lists. List, folks, lists are incomplete. So often what we do is we say, if I'm on the list, that's a problem. So if I get rid of all the list stuff, then I'm probably good. Here's the problem with that. The lists are inconclusive. They're not completed. They're purely a list in the context of what the author is currently writing to. So the authors, whether it's Paul or Peter, Paul especially loves his lists. They are giving a list of things that they say separate us from God, But here's the actual theological reality. The only thing that separates you from God is unbelief. So belief connects you with God. Unbelief separates you from God. So so like if you're a gossip, you're on the list. So does that automatically mean you got to come to the front, say a sinner's prayer, get saved every week after every time you gossip? No. Belief is what connects you to God. Unbelief is what separates you from God. So please, never read these lists as a complete list. Sin is a state of being and we are all sinners. There is not one sin that separates you differently than another. That's a drastic theological and practical mistake that we've made in the Christian church. We look for our lists and we quote the lists because we're not on it. But the reality is, is we're living in a sin-filled world, and we are, by state of being, sinners who are being challenged by God, given the grace that God gives, we're going to unpack that, to change, to be progressively sanctified, become more and more like Christ. So it's not a complete list. There is no complete list in Scripture. The author is making a point to the specific people in a specific situation. Okay, my rant's over about lists. Can you tell I really love them? I just don't like how we use them because we've alienated people from the Christian church by quoting lists when we ourselves are putting ourselves on the list by quoting it. You follow me? Good. So, if you're going to serve Jesus as king, Peter's saying, We should not stay the way that we were when he found us. We're to become a disciple, scripture says. A follower of Jesus and disciples change. So Peter says in our newfound identity, we need to avoid things that God sees as evil. Things that cause us to stray away from our hope being grounded in Jesus, things that damage our relationship with Christ and with one another. So he's challenging us to say, these things on this list, these are things that you could watch out for, that you could pay attention for, because they are things that will stunt your growth, that will stop you from growing, from changing, from living in your identity. He says, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander are all things that are self-centered and unproductive. They're things that take our minds and actions away from God and make things all about us. And we like things that are all about us. So Peter says, these things need to be put to death in you. Why? Because you're a child of God. That's your identity. These things are what we need to watch out for in our lives as they creep back into our lives. Notice them and rid yourself of them. Now, remember the context of what Peter's doing here. He's dealing with dispersed Christians who are not fitting into the culture. They're being persecuted. But Peter's fear is, is that they will begin to blend that they won't be set apart, that they won't be holy, that they won't be different, that they'll actually begin to blend into culture. And so this list that he's giving us is a list of things that actually cause us to begin to blend. And so you have to rid yourself of these blending mindsets in order to change. But how? Like, How do we possibly just turn those things off and turn on the holy switch that Peter seems to be pressing us toward. You ever wondered that? Like how do we just become holy because we have this identity in Christ? Well, Peter actually wants to tell us that. He wants to give us that direction. So in verse chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's going to tell us how to do this. He's going to tell us that it says to he says to crave spiritual milk. Let's listen. He says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted, that's a reference to Psalm 34, eight. So if you're interested, you could write down Psalm 34, eight and read that to find out what he means by this tasting that the Lord is good. He says, like newborn children, we need nourishment. We need to consume food that helps us to grow up healthy and strong. Now, I consume food. Right? I'm pretty good at consuming food. But am I consuming the kind of food that helps me to grow? Some are going, yep. You've managed to grow well. But there's a key phrase in the connecting word to growth, healthy. And so I don't know that I'm actually eating the food that creates healthy growth in myself or if I'm just eating food that creates growth. You get what I'm saying? There's a difference between growth and healthy growth. So like newborn children, we need nourishment. We need to consume food that helps us to grow up healthy and strong. But there's a certain kind of food that we should be seeking. Peter says that the only way to do this, to grow in the healthy way, is to seek or crave. Those are action words. Craving. Anybody craves? Like, You you ever had a craving for a Big Mac? Right, where you just can't get it out of your mind, and then like a commercial comes up that they now offer bacon on it. You know, that kind of craving where you're like, I'm, so, see ya, honey, I'm going for a drive, be back in a little bit. Like that kind of craving, that, that thing that won't leave you alone. That word crave is really super important, folks. It's not just saying consider or kind of like, or like it's like crave it. It won't leave you alone. You want it so much. So he says that we're to seek or crave God's word. Crave to learn more about our savior, Jesus. Long to know him more, to connect with him and experience him. That's the nourishment that growing disciples crave, he says. He says, this is how you grow up in your salvation. So salvation isn't just this this thing that we receive because we said a prayer and then we're good to go because we got our ticket to heaven. Our salvation is an ongoing journey. It's not something that a prayer provides alone. We work toward growth in our spiritual life and in our discipleship. We don't just rest in our ticket. We grow in our salvation by becoming an active disciple of Jesus. And the motivation for this, according to Peter's train of thought here in this passage, is what we have received through salvation. He says that we have gotten a taste of the Lord's goodness that that is the thing that's driving you. This taste drives us to want more because the Holy Spirit is pushing us toward Jesus. In other words, growth as a disciple is not an option. This isn't an optional thing that we just sort of go, I'm going to opt out of the hard work and I'm just going to rest as a baby. We need to be nourished. We need to grow, but we need to do it in the healthy things growth as a disciple is not optional. It's not some it's something that we should be seeking, craving, longing for. It's a desi- it's the desire that the spirit places in us upon receiving and I want you to hear this, receiving and experiencing the grace of salvation. Grace is something that we are given freely, but we don't deserve. It's something that was given to- Has anybody been given something they didn't deserve, but it was awesome? Grace is that thing. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. No prayer is what gives it to us. God, through his son's death and resurrection on the cross, through that sacrifice of a life, is what gives us the grace to enter into a relationship with our father. But it's also something, there is things that we can get distracted by that make us not experience or understand or live under this grace. There are things in our world that cause us to forget or ignore God. And God knows that. Peter talked about foreknowledge. God knows that we will get distracted. And throughout Scripture, there's constant reminders that we have not actually arrived. Anybody that's like, I'm there, I am the ultimate disciple of Jesus Christ, good for you. The rest of us are a disaster. Trying to work toward being like the father and the son but knowing that we're often falling short of it. And scripture knows this and reminds us that growth is essential and so don't sit static but grow closer to God and crave that relationship. God, To simplify it, folks, God has the same goal for us that we have as parents for our children. Anybody here a parent? There's a few of you around here that that have been parents. That's good because you understand that the goal that you have for your children, like the bare bones goal, is that they will mature into loving, responsible adults who will flourish in life. That is exactly what our Heavenly Father wants for us as well. He wants us to grow up. How many people would like to keep your 15-year-old 15? <laughs> I have a 15-year-old, so that's why I'm using this as an example. right? Te- do we want a teenage boy forever? They're not all bad. They have their moments, right? Listen to what Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 says. I love this passage. Therefore, now we didn't read what's above, but I highly recommend you do because this connects to that. But I'll, I'll give it to you in its context. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Now listen to what he says. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that led to death and of faith in God, Maturity in faith is by growing in the way we act and see the world. And the author of Hebrews is saying that in order to grow, we can't keep going back to the things we repented of, the things that led to death. These things need to die in our lives. If my teenage son keeps crashing my car, I'll forgive him for it, but there will come a time where I'm going to be like, is he ever going to learn to drive slower? Is he ever going to learn that stop means stop? Is he ever going to grow up enough that he stops crashing my car, or is he just going to keep crashing my car knowing dad will forgive him? See, that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. An immature believer keeps repenting of the same things, but keeps doing it. A mature believer learns from those things and changes it. The definition, theologically, of repentance is a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of action. So when we're repenting about the same thing over and over and over again, the author of Hebrews is saying, you're staying immature. You're not growing in your faith. You're not learning to make a change in your life. And so the antidote to that, he's going to give us. You see, as our father God wants us to learn from our mistakes and grow through them, we can't just keep making the mistakes, but our reality is that sometimes we will. But he wants us to learn like any parent would want us to learn from our mistakes and to grow in them, to mature. If I knew the things that I knew, know now when I was younger, I would have been a very different teenager. But I needed to learn through mistakes, through difficult things at times, possibly even suffering, To mature. So God points us towards something. He gives us a solution to this. He says that the antidote for immaturity is doing good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It's interesting because people argue about this in the church culture. But, like, okay, we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God connects good works with transformation. We're going to unpack that as as we go. We were created to do these good works, and our works is evidence of our salvation. So he talks about our fruitfulness. It's through God's love and our good works that we begin. So what is the point of all of this? To begin to grasp just how great God's love is for us. It's the experiences that we have with grace through our good works that motivates growth. And grace shows us how great God's love is for us. Knowing this love helps produce a passion for Scripture and knowing Jesus more. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 to 19. He says, "'So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith,' And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. So rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. Listen to what this power is. not to be like awesome. It's not to like do miracles. It's not to do any of that. It's to grasp, this would insinuate that we don't, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You see, once you begin to grasp just how wide, how long, how high, how deep, how amazing Christ's love is, this grace that we receive, you begin, when you start to grasp that, to crave his presence. So this is his antidote. Learn the love of God through good works. Because good works take you outside of self. Because they're good works that are motivated by grace. And he says that once you've begun to grasp this love, you will begin to crave his presence. Can you imagine that? Like, no more getting up in the morning and saying, hmm, do I go to church? Hmm, do I read my Bible? Hmm, how much time do I give God today? Could you imagine if you were craving his presence? Always. If there wasn't things distracting us from that. Now, this concept of growth is interesting, and I have about 11 minutes to walk you through my whole scouring of Scripture of what I believe God is calling us to grow in. And so the way that I have looked through all of scripture, how's he calling us to grow as a disciple? I've come up with seven distinctive uh, things, distinctive ways that God calls us to be growing and changing as disciples in Jesus. Now, as I'm going through these seven things, because we love lists, so lists will work. I'm listing seven things. I'm gonna give you passages along with these seven things. I need you to understand something. I'm listing them in a list on purpose because you can't skip number one and move to number two. You first have to grow in number one in order to move into number two. And then you need to grow in number two in order to move into number three and so on. So you'll see how this works. So the first one, this is number one. We need to grow in our understanding of grace. Now, our passage today actually spends some time with that. That we should be growing in our understanding of grace, our acceptance of God's free grace, and our offering of grace to others. It's so interesting how God offers us grace, but then we somehow religiously have transformed church into offering no grace. But Scripture says that that's immature that you have to grow in your understanding of grace and an understanding of grace is accepting that we have received it free. We didn't earn it. We received it free through the death and resurrection of Christ. And then we offer that grace to others. Paul also, sorry, Peter also teaches about this in chapter three. I'm not gonna get, I'm just gonna quote a verse and move on because we're gonna teach on that verse like 10 weeks from now when we get to chapter three. He said, for Christ also suffered once for our sins. Christ suffered once for our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring God, sorry, to bring you to God. Folks, that's grace. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. That is a great verse to show you what grace is. It's something we don't deserve. That Jesus suffered for us and gave his life for us. And we need to be growing in our understanding of this grace, experiencing, because understanding isn't all about head. I don't actually believe you can understand grace if you only wrap your head academically around it. I think if you're only academic about it, if you're only reading and memorizing about it, you're not actually understanding it. Because I actually think that grace is something you experience in order to understand it. And when we, when we grow in our understanding of grace, we're experiencing the work of the cross and the undeserved love of the Father. We never take for granted the grace that we have received through salvation. Peter already talked about that. We're to pass on this grace to others, showing them through our own lives just how loving our Father is. It's pretty hard to convince people that God loves them when we don't. Isn't that kind of a difficult concept? Jesus loves you. I'm going to judge you like crazy. And I'm going to quote lists and put you on those lists. But Jesus loves you. Do you see the disconnect there? That's an immature view of grace. And as you mature and experience grace, you'll learn to pass grace on to others. And this understanding and experience of grace motivates us toward growth when you hear me use the phrase grace-motivated works, that's what I'm talking about, that you have grown in your understanding of grace and you've learned to live under it, to live forgiven. Now, when we've grown in grace, we then can begin to grow in faith. I actually think it's connected. I don't think you can have a misunderstanding of grace and possibly grow in faith. Second Thessalonians 1, Chapter 1 verse 3 says we ought always to thank God for you brothers and sisters and rightly so because your faith is growing more and more and the love of all of you have all you have for one another is increasing. You see this all throughout scripture the evidence of believers growing in their faith becoming more and more reliant on Jesus rather than self the evidence of this Peter says, is growth in trusting God. So the evidence is growth in trusting God, and it's their ever-increasing love for one another. So you see, in order to grow as Christians, we have to grow in our understanding of grace, Grow in our faith. That means we need to actually begin to live life believing that God will fulfill the promises that he gave. Instead of trying to create them ourselves, instead of us trying to control all the situations, we're called to rest by faith, believing that God is bigger than us. And what does that then lead us to? To grow in love. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other. Now, a lot of people are like, yes, the church needs to learn to love one another. It's about caring for us and our family, our club, our little group, our members. But listen to what it says. It says, overflow for each other. Oh, and for everyone else. You see, the kind of increased love that overflows in a believer that's growing in their understanding of grace, that's growing in their understanding of faith, that's growing in love, they've learned to transform that love of not just one another, but to everyone else. Even if they made the list. He says, just as ours does for you. Our love is to increase as we grow in Christ. We're called to grow in our love for others in a way that surpasses anything that we could ever imagine. But how? How is this even possible? Well, the next growth thing, so once all of that has come to somewhat of a reality in our lives, we can then begin to grow in our understanding. It's interesting because the Christian church jumps to that one first. But we gotta grow in our understanding of God. In 1 Corinthians 14, 20, he says, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but, if you're, but in your thinking, be adults. You see, as new babies in Christ, we don't know much about our faith or our relationship with Jesus. But Paul says that this is, should change. Now, I want to qualify something. Peter is talking to adults, or sorry, Paul in Corinth is talking to adults. He's saying that it's possible for an adult to remain a baby. No matter how long they've sat in church no matter how long they've read Scripture and memorized Scripture, that it's possible that they will always remain thinking like a child instead of thinking like an adult. That growth doesn't automatically happen in your life because you're religious. He says that this needs to change, that we can't stay as children. We need to become adults in our faith. Adults have experience and are more mature, have a more mature understanding. Now, this is in theory of life than children. Sometimes, though, adults act like children, and we don't pass on that experience to our kids very well. Like, I made a joke in the first service, so I might as well do it today. Ladies, have you looked at your husband? Is he kind of childlike? Right? Like, guys, it's time we grow up and start actually acting in our faith like adults. And we laugh at that, but there's a deep truth in it. This church has more gifted leaders on the female side than it does on the male side. And it's because, as males, we often stay as infants and we don't grow because we like to attach ourselves to our childlikeness but we're supposed to grow. I often think to myself, if I only knew what I knew as a kid, oh, how I would do things so differently in my life. There's, you know, like Would I drive my motorcycle? I loved motorcycles. Would I drive, was it wise for me to drive my motorcycle 200 kilometers an hour down the road? Was that wise? No. Like you, you would think as an adult I would learn, but I probably still would. I would. I love it. I love the thrill of it. I would do it on a racetrack now instead of on a road. But now, well, depends. You notice, like, I'm 44 years old and I'm still learning stuff. Just because we're old, just because we have experience, doesn't mean that that is translated into maturity. We still do stuff that's immature, and that's what Peter is warning of in these passages. He's encouraging us to grow in our understanding of Jesus. And as we grow, he says, it leads to maturity. So as we experience grace and learn to live under grace, it triggers us to trust in God more, which motivates our hearts to be more loving, which in turn drives us to want to understand our Father more. In order to know the Father more, we must resist the patterns of this world. Romans 12.2 says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. I don't make this stuff up. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's evidence that we need to change the way that we think. Then when your mind is being renewed through grace, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This growth in understanding helps us to know God's will for our lives. It shapes our minds to see the world as Christ sees it. Now, Paul loves using childlike imagery, and so I'll give you one more just for kicks. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, we could remove gender from that and just say, when I became a believer... What I was saying is, I'm going to serve you, Jesus, by putting my childlike ways behind me, and I'm going to grow in maturity in my understanding of who you are. He's begging us to stop being like a child, to grow up and be discipled. Now, there's pieces also where Scripture talks about us being childlike. He's talking about the faith element. Not the growth element, but the faith element, that we have childlike faith because kids will just believe stuff. And us adults analyze that stuff. So they want us, he wants us to be childlike in order to, in our faith in order to launch us into the rest of the growth pattern to grow as adults. Do you see what I'm saying? Track him with me? I can spend another 20 minutes on that. Oh, I don't know. We're going to grow in holiness, though. Yeah. You see, through reading Scripture and through experiencing God in life sometimes through suffering actually often through suffering we grow in our understanding of God as our father and this produces what scripture calls holiness so we are to grow in holiness second corinthians 7:1 therefore since we have these promises there's that promise thing again since we have these promises dear friends Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness. Now listen, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. As we grow up, our behavior should start to be more Christ-like. We should be more set apart. That's what holiness means. Compared to those who are still infants. But this happens only out of reverence for God. It's our reverence, our awe of God that drives our holiness. We cannot achieve holiness by omitting ourselves from the lists. We can only achieve holiness being set apart by having reverence for God, a reverent fear, Peter told us last week. An awe of who God is in our lives is what draws us to holiness if that isn't what's drawing you, if it's the lists, if it's the motivation for ethics and so on, what ends up happening is, is you become a big faker. And fakers are are really good at faking things, but religiosity eventually gets exposed. See, that's what faking leads you to, is becoming a religious person instead of a Christ follower. And religion is always exposed because It's fruitless. And that leads us to our next point. We need to grow. As we're growing in our holiness, we grow in our fruitfulness. I got to get moving. Fruit is the evidence that Scripture says shows our salvation to others, and it actually shows our maturity. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear. Do you see those action words? To go and bear fruit. To go, to actively seek, to actively go and bear fruit. We can't just sit and bear fruit. We can't do nothing and bear fruit. We have to go and bear fruit. And then he says this, not just bearing fruit, going and bearing fruit, but fruit that will last. And so whenever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. We are to bear fruit that lasts fruit that makes a difference, fruit that shows a different kind of love than the world. When we bear fruit in our lives, it causes us, we're at the last point now, which would be number seven. All of this causes us to grow in our contentment. You see, without all of these others, we'll never find contentment. And so when I'm struggling with contentment, because I often do, I always look to where am I missing the mark in these other things? Am I struggling with my faith? Am I not growing in grace, my understanding of grace, or my understanding of God? Why am I not content? And contentment, I believe, is something that especially in North America, we deeply struggle with. As we grow in Christ, we're to become more content. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 to 12. If you've been at Evergreen for a while, you've heard this verse a lot. I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Think about how profound this would be in your life. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He says, no matter what the circumstance, if we place our trust in Christ, if he is the center of our lives, we will grow in our contentment. You see, folks, scripture is clear that As those who profess faith in Jesus, we are called to grow, we're called to change, and to become more like the Son. Theologically, it's a fancy word called sanctification. We're called to be sanctified, to become progressively more and more like Jesus. And the Father has given us every tool that we need to live this growth. James, the brother of Jesus, says this, it's also the pastor of the church in Jerusalem at this time. In verse chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. You see that pressing, that, that action of coming near to God? And then the reply is, is that he will come near to you. And then he says, Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We come near to God through the scriptures and community, And serving others through our good works. And God wants us to commune with him. To learn from him. To live in community so that we can learn from others. He wants us to experience grace and love in community. Folks, God didn't go, I should develop a church full of people who are never going to get it. Our reality is, is we have a church full of people who are probably never going to get it, but he gives you tools as a community together, experiencing life and experiencing God together so that we can learn and grow with each other. He wants us to function and experience grace and love in community, and even at times experience stress and not love. Because community is important. Scripture is very communal. This thing you have of like this North American mindset of my faith is my personal thing, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that faith is not personal. It's communal in nature. It's done together. It's a North American mindset that makes it about individuals. That's why in places like Africa, revival's happening, and in North America, we're progressively shrinking, because we don't get community. We'd rather put fences up around our houses. But when we live in community and we learn and experience grace and love in our community, we're motivated by that grace that we've received in him to crave knowing him more. So, growing as Christians is all about living our lives together with God and others in a way that humbles our hearts. Worship team can join me. Spiritual growth leads us into a deeper relationship with the Father, and it shapes us to be more like the Son. And it's not an option, it's what every father wants for his children. So, as we live in our faith, we're going to make mistakes. In no way is Peter saying that we're not going to make mistakes. But we can experience grace within those mistakes, be forgiven, and learn to respond differently. We don't need to beat ourselves up. Instead, we press into community with each other, and we press into knowing God more and more each day. Get rid of that mindset of, I don't want the person sitting next to me to know my iniquities. In community, they're actually supposed to because they can come alongside you and you can grow together. You see, a community full of grace is a community that offers growth in Christ. And through his scriptures and other tools of formation, which you're going to experience next week if you've never been to the practice, we ignore some of these tools of formation that are scriptural-based things given to the church that we should practice But through different styles and things that we like, we ignore some of these things. Our smallest service is actually the most biblical service. Interesting. These tools of formation we can use to be drawn into his presence more and more as we mature in Christ. Our Father has given us the pathway that we need to grow and mature. In our understanding and our relationship of Him and one another. Let's pray.